This podcast was supported by Grant 2016 MUMUK001, awarded by the Office of Juvenile Justice and Delinquency Prevention. The opinions, findings, conclusions, and recommendations expressed in this podcast are those of the host and guests and do not necessarily reflect those of the U.S. Department of Justice. everyone, and welcome to the Reflections on Research podcast. I'm your host, Mike Geringer, Director of Research and Evaluation at Mentor, the National Mentoring Partnership. Just a reminder that this episode is brought to you as part of our work on the National Mentoring Resource Center, or the NMRC, and that is the nation's leading source of training and technical assistance for youth mentoring programs. The center is sponsored through a cooperative agreement with the Office of Juvenile Justice and Delinquency Prevention, or OJJDP, might hear us refer to them multiple times throughout this this episode. And they have a long history of investing not only in youth mentoring programming, but also in mentoring research, including some of the studies that we'll be talking about today. And so we certainly thank them for their generous support of both cutting edge research and then projects like the NMRC that allow that research to reach a wider audience. If this is your first time listening to uh, this podcast, uh, just please note that you can always find new episodes of this on the NMRC website at nationalmentoringresourcecenter.org.org. And you can always get the scoop on upcoming episodes and publications, other work that the center is doing by subscribing to our monthly e-newsletter. And that's very easy to do right there on the homepage of the website. So I'm very excited to have our guest with us today. He's somebody that I've worked with a lot in my career over the last uh, decade or two. And uh, one of my favorite people in the youth mentoring movement, and that is Dr. Michael Karcher. Uh, Michael is a professor of educational psychology in the College of Education and Human Development at the University of Texas at San Antonio. He has a doctorate in human development and psychology from Harvard, as well as a doctorate in educational psychology uh, from the University of Texas at Austin. He has co-authored uh, the Cross-Age Mentoring Program Manuals and, and developed that whole program. So you may know him from his work uh, with CAMP, which at one point in time was listed in SAMHSA's National Registry of Effective Programs and Practices uh, before that shut down. But he's developed a number of wonderful Cross-Age peer mentoring programs over the years. Uh, he's also been the principal investigator on a number of, of key studies in the youth mentoring field, including two OJJDP-funded research projects. So we'll be talking about one of those today and may, may touch on the other one. Um, and you also may recognize Michael's name from his uh, seminal work on the Handbook of Youth Mentoring, both editions of that. Uh, he was the co-editor with uh, David Dubois of both of those, and those frankly continue to be the best uh, compendiums of kind of research information that we have about youth mentoring. You may have also seen Michael at the National Mentoring Summit or events like the Summer Institute on Youth Mentoring, uh, where he frequently goes and shares his knowledge with people in the field. So thanks for joining us today, Michael. Well, my pleasure. So I want to start off talking about one of your more recent OJJDP-sponsored studies, and that was an evaluation of the Youth Advocate Program, or YAP, I think as it's commonly referred to. This is a national program that serves court-referred youth and often ones that have committed uh, some kind of serious or, or violent offense uh, as part of their their involvement in the court. They get referred to this program, and I think you can understand why an organization like OJJDP would be interested in learning more about its effectiveness. I think they also use paid mentors uh, in the mentoring role in an effort to, I think, increase the intensity of the mentoring that kids are getting. And so I don't want to go too deep into this, but could you maybe just explain a little bit more to our audience about what the program's all about and how they kind of work with these young people to, to turn their lives around? Sure. The Youth Advocate Program is an intensive diversion program where typically kids who've been involved with the court system are referred by judges uh, into the YAP program in lieu of other 
other institutional options for these kids who've, who've um, gotten involved with the legal system. They are matched with a advocate who's really a mentor, and they spend about 10 to 15 hours a week with the advocate. And the advocate has a, a broad range of duties or has a range of ways that they can work with the kids. They work directly with the families more than in most mentoring programs. They also go to the schools and they advocate to get the kids back in school and engaged, even help them try to secure employment if that's uh, something that's uh, of interest to them. But they have, I was drawn to this study because I had developed an interest in mentoring activities. This is one of the things that I've been uh, looking at and studying ever since the my early school-based mentoring work, where I noticed there were direct relationships between types of activities that mentors engaged in and the outcomes that we saw with kids. So that earlier work was with kids who were not involved with the court, uh, who are not engaged in delinquent acts that would have given them negative prior experiences with, with you know multiple adults and institutions, but just regular school kids. Here, we've got these advocates, these adults coming in to work with kids at a real crisis point, you know, in their in their lives, a real turning point. And I think that's also very different. In this program, you've got kids who many, I think many, one of the things that emerged to me in trying to make sense of the data was many of these kids, I think, know they can use the advocate to try to uh, get back on track or they could reject the advocate. But then wh where's that going to leave them? Because they, in some ways, they sort of need any help they can get at that point to get back on track. And so those advocates will, um, they will teach, they'll tutor, they will, they will advocate in, in settings, community settings, work settings, school settings. They'll help rebuild relationships with the family and they'll spend one-on-one -on -one time building a relationship. So it seemed like a great way to um, sort of test out some of the theories that had been put forward in the mentoring field previously and that we've described, Mike Nuckala and I, in a, something called the team framework. So I'll talk a little bit more about that later, but it was a neat, unique opportunity to look at uh, intensive mentoring with kids who need it in a variety of ways. Great. Thanks, Michael. And I, you know, I've always appreciated the fact that you've always in your work paid attention, you know, not just to the simple question of, you know, is a program working or not working, but why and how is it working and really focusing on the actions of mentors, the activities that they engage in and and how that influences things. And, and certainly we'll get to that and, and see how that interfaces with that team framework that you mentioned. But I, I do want to kind of, you know, share with our audience up front, you know, you did do an evaluation of the program, looking at uh, a number of outcomes related to uh, the delinquency and recidivism. And, and I'm just hoping for our audience, you can maybe just quickly run through uh, the success of the program, because it sure seemed like that intensive model that you just described really was making a difference for these young people. When we started this project, we planned to do a uh, quasi-experimental design propensity score analysis with these kids where we would, we had the YAP kids and we, and the YAP organization, the Youth Advocate Program has strong relationships with the, uh, with the court system because they work hand in hand. So they were, we were able to um, uh, access data from from the courts for kids who were not referred to the app program to see if the outcomes were different. After about a year of, of, of working with the five sites in five different states and collecting data, it became apparent that the data was so inconsistent across settings in terms of what was measured and how it was measured. And in terms of capturing variables that were needed to really identify a matched comparison group that uh, to make a long story short, the Pensy score matching really didn't work. So we had to shift to something else. And I had been working to try to explore something called the recurrent institutional cycle design. It was something that Kyoki and Hansen and I had had conversations about as part of Big Brother, Big Sisters uh, collaborations back in the 90s. And I've been sort of playing with, with, with this model that was, that's from the, the 60s and it's sort of lost favor, but I think is really, really ripe for being used now. We're really ready for it for a number of reasons. I won't go into those, but we use this recurrent institutional cycle design to look at change over time from entry to discharge, which was about four months uh, on average. That's typically how long the, the program goes. Then we also did a one-year a one follow-up with folks uh, who had been in the YAP program. And 
I won't go into describing this design at this point. I'll just say that some of the findings we found and the reports available online, some of the findings uh, that are relevant to kind of a, a, a story that, that's evolving were increased uh, connectedness to teachers from pre to post and decreased misconduct reported. And then also we there was a there was a measure of most serious disposition, which is the their likelihood or to what extent they had been involved with the court in any way, whether it was criminal, whether there were status offenses, whether they had misdemeanors or a felony, where where the more severe would be obviously having a felony or, or a misdemeanor uh, arrest or conviction. And we found that the most serious disposition, degree of involvement in crime, was significantly reduced a year later, declined, and uh, and the misconduct had declined from beginning. Uh, those were exciting findings, and we did a, a number of checks to sort of test the validity of these tests, and then uh, and then spent the rest of the, the report looking at how activities might explain the uh, findings there. Thank you, and I think it's really encouraging to see those findings a, a year later after their exit from the program, you know, there's kind of a ongoing story in most mentoring research around kind of a dissipation of effects over time, the further you get away from the end of the relationship, the end of your involvement in the program, you just start seeing these declines over time. And so I'm always intrigued by studies where uh, not only did the mentoring seem to work, but it seemed to stick at some level. And, you know, a year might not sound like much to some of our listeners, but I think if you're a young person who's been in trouble with the law and trying to figure out where you're going with your life and get back on track uh, academically and career-wise and with family and health and all of those things, you know, finding reductions in in misbehavior and, and not committing more serious crime a year later, that's a big win. And um, even just in terms of things like savings on the court system, you know, court and and jail is expensive. So um, that's nice and encouraging, I think. So let's dive into though that activities conversation, because I think you really looked at kind of the progression of these relationships and what mentors were doing over time. And I felt like when I read the report, that was a really interesting story. So maybe tell our listeners a little bit about what you found about, you know, what seemed to work in, in supporting these young people. As some background, I would share that I found out in my early school-based mentoring studies that there were some really direct negative effects of trying to focus on the problems that kids were encountering in school. So mentors who came in and immediately were talking about how kids needed to change their behaviors or what they could do to get along with their teachers better or how they could improve their grades or the importance of staying in school if they, or, their, or their absenteeism. Many of those problems that mentors often think this is what I'm here to do is sort of correct this kid and get them back on track. Now in the schools where these kids really weren't that off track and in this communities and schools program, a lot of the kids were self-referred and uh, wanted a mentor and they, they, these weren't troublemakers. So you can see how they would be a bit offended by this, this sort of diving into their problems with uh, the youth advocate kids. However, they've actually, they actually do have problems. It's quite obvious and quite clear that there's, there's difficulty. Half of the kids, had been involved in the, in the legal system. Another, another quarter of them were, were referred because of abuse, neglect, uh, homelessness, which is similar to the legal involvement or the court involvement in the sense that uh, adult institutions had failed them. And so two thirds of these kids and then others were referred for truancy or substance use. Pretty much all these kids come here, I think, struggling with the question of whether they can trust adults. And so, you know, YAP, YAP is uh, focused on building a relationship of trust. They hire advocates that they believe are uh, similar to the, to the youth. They try to recruit mentors from the same neighborhoods uh, and who are culturally similar to them because they think that's an important factor in establishing a bond with the kid uh, and rebuilding that trust. And so I think trust and relationship building is really important for them. So this is an interesting context to look at activities and how they relate to outcomes. Now, as you know, from the team framework, it's just convenient to call it the team framework. What the team framework is always trying to do is compare the activities findings and apply them the, uh, from two different sets of, of early studies. The Hamiltons who worked with teenagers and apprenticeships who identified a pathway or a, or a relationship style they called it instrumental, where they said the strongest mentoring relationships were ones that formed 
after there had been a focus on shared skill development or problem-focused activities, where both wanted to focus on these, this, this thing in the apprenticeship setting, after that, where a relationship and a friendship developed, they saw the best outcomes. So in that case, you sort of worked first and you played later with adults. And these are with teenagers, not involved with the court. That's um, from uh, Mary Agnes and Steve Hamilton's work. Now that contrasts with, as you know, the Big Brother, Big Sister studies by Morrow and Stiles that went along when Grossman and Tierney were evaluating the program and later Grossman and Rhodes were looking at the Big Brother, Big Sister community-based program. And in their study by Morrow and Stiles, they came up with a style they called the developmental style. And they found that matches did best with kids in community-based mentoring in Big Brother, Big Sister, when the first thing they did was really establish a friendship and spend time cultivating that bond. And that once that happened, the kids would naturally bring problems into the relationship for discussion and for assistance. And they contrasted that with what they called a prescriptive style, which is that one that's kind of like what I mentioned earlier that I saw in the schools where the mentors came in, focused on kids' problems and sort of prescribed what these kids needed to do before establishing a relationship and that that was the least effective approach. The difference between the prescriptive style and the instrumental one that the Hamiltons have described is in both cases, there's a focus on problems early on or skills or in some ways deficits or things lacking for the kid. Uh, and there's not a focus on the relationship early on. But the difference is for the Hamiltons in the apprenticeship mentoring programs, the kids wanted what the mentors were offering. In the Big Brother Big Sisters study, the kids really didn't seem to want what these mentors were talking about. You know what I mean? So it's that collaborative shared focus that, that became a really important piece of, um, of looking at whether uh, focusing on work and problems and deficits in the kid's life is gonna be welcomed by the kid. Do they want that? If they want it, you could start there, help them with the things they think they need help with, and, and then later spend time developing a friendship. Was I clear so far? Yeah, no, that's great. And so, so when I, I love the distinction between, you know, you can start off with a relationship or you can start off with kind of the harder work, <laughs> so to speak. And I, and I don't think they're mutually exclusive. You can still get to know somebody while, you know, diving into to some of the more serious work you need to do. But, but I do think those are styles that have come out in the research over the years and two different approaches. To, and I love that you brought up you know, a lot of it's what is the kid ready for, right? Are they ready to do that work or do they need to warm up to you first? So how did all of that play out in the case of YAP? What did you find was effective in terms of an approach here? We decided to focus on explaining changes in misconduct over the four-month period, right? I, I feel like we have pretty reliable evidence that there had been change. We ran tests to make sure these changes weren't regression to the mean or maturation or other or explained in other ways. These, these seem to be the product of a good experience in the program. So then we wanted to look at activities, but one of the things that, that YAP was interested in was the degree of similarity in backgrounds, thinking that advocates who were more like the families that the kids came from would have a better, a bigger effect. And there are a couple of questions about cultural and racial similarity, but we I wanted to focus on the roles that they played and the goals of the program. So uh, for example, two characteristics I'll talk about in a second are, to what extent do the, does the effectiveness of different kinds of activities, uh, is it, well, first, is it explained by the kids? Are kids at higher risk or older kids? Or um, are there some kind of kids who tend to have mentors who dive into problems first? Or kids who tend to engage in play? Because one of the big differences between the Big Brother Big Sister study and the Hamilton's work that always has to be considered is, the Big Brother Big Sister study was with kids who were basically under high school age, whereas the Hamilton's work was with high schoolers and, and older. So you've got this moderating factor of age where the young kids wanted to play and have a, have a friendship and have fun. And that's developmentally actually fairly appropriate, whereas the high school kids were ready to work and collaborate with adults. The report that we provided tries to do in sort of a stepwise fashion, answer some questions. You know, the first is, are the kid characteristics predictive of what happened in the match? And, and it was the case that there were, some, there were some connections between kid age. For example, 
um, but they weren't exactly what you would necessarily expect. But older kids were more likely to have advocates who had more experience as teachers, and they were and they had been more educated. So the older, whether you're a boy or a girl, the older you were, the more likely you were to get these these advocates that, in some ways, are less like the uh, families that the, many of these kids came from. These were these were low income kids and a small portion of their family members or parents had had secondary you know, college education. So we're finding the older, the older the kid, the more likely they are to have these advocates who may be actually more different from them. So we needed to control for age in that way. But, and then gender was another one. It was a little hard to understand why, but the, uh, I'm sorry, the boys were more likely to have advocates who had prior teaching experience. And the girls were more likely to have advocates who had college or, or um, or higher levels of education. And that's important because they, those factors of the advocates contributed as much in predicting what happened in the match as the, as the kids' characteristics. Whereas the youth sex, you know, as a characteristic, boys were more likely to spend time playing in their matches right off the bat. And girls were more likely to dive into discussing problems right off the bat. So there was that distinction. But after that first part of the match, the kids' characteristics weren't as predictive as the mentor characteristics in what happened in the match. But before I get to that, let me let me talk about the play and the problem focus. Where we approached the design where we would measure what they were what they did in the first two months of their match and what they did in the next two months of their match. Now keep in mind they meet for 10 to 15 hours a week. So it's not like a regular program where kids might meet for a couple of hours a month. If you think about the total number of hours, this is like a two-year match in a community setting that goes on in this four month period. It's fairly intense. So we looked at what was the role of play and what was the role of problem focus in the match. And what we what we saw was there, what happened early in the match wasn't that important in explaining what happened later in terms of whether there was increases or decreases in misconduct. Instead, it was what they were doing later in the match that was most most predictive and most most important. Matches that played at a higher rate, spent more time, and specifically doing sports. So obviously, the, um, the, we use a factor structure. To, uh, we did factor analyses to, to allow the contribution made by different types of play, whether it's game play, card play, uh, or sports, to vary. And so sports, you know, active play later in the match, in those third, that second and third uh, month of the match, was predictive of, of declines in misconduct. So the more you played in the, la- in the second half of your relationship, the less misconduct occurred at, at discharge. Conversely, the more there was a focus on problems and solving problems and problems in the kid's life at that second half of the match, the more they were focused on problems in the second part of the match, the greater the, the misconduct. And this is controlling for how much misconduct there was to begin with. So whether or not the kid came in at high levels of misconduct. We've, we've got that accounted for. So you think, well, that's interesting. So what seemed to be most important was these, ex- these positive experiences with the advocate through play later in the match. That itself is more consistent with the instrumental approach than the developmental approach in that it's suggesting that after they have focused on, on work, you know, after they focused on sort of problems, and in fact, there was, a, there was, a, there was, a, uh, there was evidence of a benefit uh, of focusing on problems right off the bat for later um, in the first, you know, in the first two months for, for later misconduct. It was a, at, at the uh, trend level of significance, but there is evidence in the data that a focus on problems right off the bat was not bad, where it was clear that focusing on problems later in the match was problematic. So if this had been a developmental style, we would have said that these these youth wanted to um, play and get to know and develop a relationship with the advocate uh, during the first half, and then, and that would allow them to establish trust and work later in the match. But that's not what the data suggests. The data suggests that in this case, the kids who did their work first and then played later, sort of like ate their meal and then had their dessert, were the ones who were benefiting the most 
later in the match. And it turns out that the degree to which they engaged in play or they engaged in focus on problems later in the match was strongly related to the, the uh, mentor characteristics. If you had an advocate who was more educated, you, there was a direct benefit on misconduct over time. So those kids who had more educated mentors engaged in less, less misconduct over time. Uh, similarly, those kids, who's, those kids whose mentors, their advocates, had been teachers previously, also reported less uh, misconduct or decreases in misconduct over time. So there's a direct benefit of more educated me mentors and mentors who had been teachers previously. You, you would think, obviously, that the reason that these uh, having these teachers, folks who had been teachers, you'd think, well, that's great because they're actually helping to teach. They know how to teach. But they actually weren't focusing on the problems. In fact, there was a, an indirect benefit of having a mentor with prior teaching experience in that those folks spent less time focusing on the kind of problems that I would think a teacher might be focused on. School attendance, problems in schools, the importance of grades, these sorts of things. Those, te those, those individuals with teaching experience were less likely to do that. So there was both a, there was both a, a direct benefit of having a, a mentor who'd been a teacher on reductions in misconduct. But there was also an indirect benefit in that those mentors were less likely to engage in problem-focused conversations later in the match. So that's fascinating, Michael, and I, I appreciate you breaking that down, you know, in such detail. I mean, it, it makes sense to me in light of, you know, the Hamilton's research that you mentioned that if you're still talking about problems and difficulties and and trying to steer this young person in a particular direction deep into the relationship, I could see how that young person would probably think, you know, what, am I just a collection of problems to you? Like, we don't seem to have moved past <laughs> the initial work that we started. And, and maybe that's because they were spending more time in play early on and kind of kicking that can down the road in terms of, you know, what are we going to work on? Well, let's get to know each other. And, you know, then it's like, well, we've got three months, you know, two months left. Let's talk about all the bad and challenging things. <laughs> so that makes complete sense to me. Uh, and I'm wondering, you know, uh, that, you know, those with teaching experience, I think maybe, well, maybe those folks just know how to read young people better. Maybe they have a better sense of when to push and when to not push. And, so, and maybe they were just more effective in getting some of those difficult uh, conversations and challenges actually addressed and done so that they actually had time for play later on. I imagine, you know, you could probably start with some of those challenging conversations, but if it's not going well and the young person's not kind of making some changes that are necessary, you know, I could see how you'd have to keep going back to that well deep into the relationship and but it sounds like you even controlled for that a little bit because you would think more misconduct prior to the program. Maybe these are more difficult kids that need the message reinforced, but you controlled for that. So it really does seem like the timing of play is really important here. Yeah. And since, we're, since you threw out the word maybe, I'll speculate that what struck me is that nationwide, there's been a real push for teachers to to need to achieve outcomes in schools. And there's been an exodus. I have colleagues who research. There's been a real exodus of the, the more caring teachers, you know, and even what you might call natural mentors, teachers who want to connect and build relationships. There's been a decline in, or an exodus of those teachers from the school systems because they have found that the pressures on them to, to get kids to perform academically make it difficult for them to be to get to know kids one-on-one. -on -one. So my speculation is part of what's going on is that those folks who were teachers but left teaching may have left teaching because they really wanted to connect. These, these are people who once taught but now have chosen to be mentors. So I think they are folks who are really committed to cultivating a relationship with these kids. That's my hunch. That's my guess. Well, but in, you also did find, though, that for mentors who were more educated those were the ones that were more likely to late in the relationship be focusing on problems. And, and there I'm going to speculate that maybe just those folks valued higher education more. Well, let me, let, and let me, I'm sorry. Maybe. Yeah, go ahead. Let me interrupt you. Cause you, you know, you would think, you would think that if the more educated 
mentors, I'm going to call them mentors, uh, were less likely to play, which is, which is the case, that they would be uh, more likely to engage in problem-focused behavior. But that actually wasn't the case. So I'm, gonna, I'm just trying to correct you on that because it wasn't that the more educated mentors focus on problems. Uh, it's just that they didn't play as much. And I think the thing is, I, I think we don't appreciate play in the field of mentoring and what it communicates. And that's what I was really taken, taken by because for me, you think, well, what is play? I, you could focus on the activity and think, well, how is playing sports? How is that about mentoring? Or how is that helping a kid? But my, my, gut, my, my gut tells me that when you're playing with your mentor, you see them smiling. And when your mentor is looking at you and smiling and having fun with you, it conveys a sense of validation and worth and significance. So it's not the activity itself. It's what the kid makes of the fact that there's an adult having fun with me. Keep in mind, these are, these are adults. These are kids for whom uh, Yap will even say they feel like these the kids who come through their program have typically had pretty bad experiences with adults. And often that's how they get referred to YAP, is that these are kids who need a reparative relationship. And so YAP prioritizes that. And so in this case, although there's some something good uh, about having more educated mentors, and I think it may be that they serve as valid advocates for whether or not that the kid could succeed in uh, secondary and post-secondary education. Like here's somebody who's done it and is saying they think I can do it, which may mean more than somebody who hasn't done it telling you do good in school because then you can go to college when that person hasn't gone to college. You know what I mean? Maybe that's why there's a direct positive benefit. But the fact that these more educated mentors don't really appreciate the, the impact of play, because the effect of play on, in de on decreases in misconduct was the strongest predictor of all the predictors in the model other than starting levels of misconduct. Like it is the most important variable to understand. And my sense is at YAP would be, would do well to hire and use more educated mentors, even if they're dissimilar from the backgrounds of the kids, but the, they've got to train those more educated mentors in the value of play and what it means to the kid. You know, the, the mentors need to embrace play as a medium for connecting with kids and validating them. Well, I, I couldn't agree more, and certainly your results here show that. And I think it's important to even note that play is really valuable here when you're talking about working with older teens, right, and and young people that have kind of been through a lot. You would not often think of play, right, as as an integral part of that. But I think your explanation of that, uh, you know, having the young person reflect on how this other person sees me, uh, I think that's really important. In this case, in this case, what I think is interesting though, is that, um, is that play early in the match was not useful. It was a non-significant predictor. It was this small coefficient. And if anything, if it was, if the sample was much larger, larger, it would have suggested a negative effect. It didn't because the sample was small and the effect was only 0.08. But early play did not have the same effect. And I ran the model a couple of ways where I took out different variables to see. And it clearly, for, for these kids who I think were in crisis, play right off the bat, uh, I think it conveyed to them, I don't think we're taking seriously um, my circumstances and how you could help me. And the program, correct me if I'm wrong here, but I, I believe each young person has a court mandated treatment plan that theoretically the advocate is supposed to be helping them you know, do all of the things that are specified on that. And so I can imagine if I'm a young person and I've got a, a judge telling me, here's your treatment plan and you're going to do this or we're going to send you back to juvie or, or you'll be in further trouble. And I have a mentor who shows up and just wants to shoot the breeze and, and play some hoops. Uh, yeah, I might be a little a little put off and wondering why we're not drilling down on, on what I need help with. Um, I want... I wanted to ask about something, you know, this is a really fairly short-term program, but I think you did mention earlier, it's also really intensive in terms of the time they spent together. So it was really like cramming a two-year Big Brothers type match into four months or so in terms of the total volume of time together. But that still also seems like a brief relationship to me, given the 
the scope of the things that these young people would need to work on and, you know, the systems they need to put in place, whether that's getting back into school, getting into a, a career ladder, uh, figuring out, you know, even their own family needs and, and planning, that just seems like a very short amount of time. And so I'm just curious as to your thoughts about how YAP was able to produce this kind of really good result from a pretty short-term relationship. Is it really just about the intensity of it and and that similarity of who the mentor is? So I'm going to tell you, you know, one of the things one of the things that's been wonderful about working with you for now, let's be honest, 20 years. I mean, uh, you you co-authored the camp materials as much as I did, if not more, and you have more experience with you. But I'm just saying, you you and I have been in many contexts together, and. Um, I love being able to tell interesting sort of stories. And the one that seems relevant right now is I remember talking to Tim Cavell one time about his mentoring relationship in Big Brother, Big Sister. And, you know, he was talking about how they go out and play and do all kinds of stuff. And it had been, you know, a year, year and a half and nothing real dramatic had happened in the kid's life. Nothing serious. It's the kind of thing where mentors go, I wonder if I'm making a difference. Am I just wasting my time? And then, and then a crisis happened. And so, you know, a year and a half into their relationship, a crisis happened. He had a relationship with the family and the kid, and he was able to be there for that family during that crisis. He wouldn't have been if he had gotten bored with the match and left, you know, and he also wouldn't have been if he was in his role as clinical psychologist and called in to help this kid who's grieving. It happened that he, and he, and he viewed himself as being, as sort of waiting. And at some point there might be a need for him in a deeper way, and there might not be. It turned out that there was, and he was there in a way that you couldn't say, oh, this kid's grieving, give him a mentor. It was a fundamentally different thing that, that Tim was there for that kid long before there was a need to deal with the problem in the kid, right? So I'm just saying, in a sense, a lot of our mentoring is kids who have difficulties, but they aren't in crisis. These kids have difficulties and they're in crisis. Also, we tend to mentor, I mean, I have a mentee, I've seen him for two and a half years now, I see him for collectively probably two to three hours a month, just once a week. So that's kind of like taking a vitamin. It's a little bit of good stuff on a regular basis and it probably helps. In this case, this, this is like giving, this, mentoring in youth advocate programs is like taking um, a Z-Pack where you've got an infection and, it's, and it could take you down. You're gonna need to take what is Z-Pack? Is that a steroid or is that a uh, anti? I think it's an antibiotic, a suite of antibiotics. Yeah, antibiotic. yeah, right. And you take it. You take that for two weeks, right, every day. And if you do that, you can get your body back on course. And I feel like Yap is a little more like that. Ten to fifteen hours a week with the same adult, trying to help you on a number of fronts during a time when you need to get back on track. It makes a lot of sense. I'd I would go with a, I'd go with a four month intensive. Z-Pack from the YAP program than a, a three-year, uh, two hours a month program for kids like this. So I'm actually not surprised that there's a benefit because you got a high dose of highly trained, committed, focused advocates who come in at a time when if the kid wants to benefit from the help of a caring adult, there is one and they're available. So, Michael, I wanted to ask you, you know, you've been in this field a long time. You mentioned it's been a couple decades for both of us earlier, uh, but you've co-authored both of those handbooks of youth mentoring. And I can't think of anybody in this field who knows more about kind of the research and what we know about mentoring than you. And I guess just a global question for you is what do you think the, the field of youth mentoring needs to do or to understand to evolve? Where do we go from here as a, a field? I've been really intrigued by some of the work at the mentoring partnership at, I think it's is it Southeastern P Pennsylvania or is it Southwestern? Oh, that would be Southwest PA, the Pittsburgh. Yeah. Southwest PA. Right. Okay. Um, so they brought to my attention something that really struck me. And it was about uh, the, this idea of fostering uh, what they called everyday mentoring. One of these things that probably will take off in 10 years, but right now, 
it's a, an uncomfortable thing for programs to think about because programs want to recruit mentors and train mentors and match them with kids. So this idea of training adults in general to be uh, able to capitalize on moments where mentoring interactions could happen with kids, right? I just thought it was so powerful, um, partly because when I went down to New Zealand to give a talk um, about mentoring activities and, and mentoring activity research specifically in programs, only to find out from my friend Dave Marshall after I had arrived and planned the presentation that more of the audience were people who were not running programs. 80% of the people there were natural mentors who were interested in uh, ways to be uh, better mentors in their everyday interactions with kids, coaches, teachers, religious individuals. And it really, it really uh, got me thinking and it led me to really appreciate the many opportunities we have to tell kids they're special, they're important, they're worthwhile. And that's really what the uh, everyday mentoring was about, is you know, sort of look, looking for uh, and helping adults know when they can effectively communicate significance to the kid. There's a, kid, there's a um, custodian at my daughter's school named Jesse, and all the kids love this guy. And he's just the nicest guy, and he's so caring and supportive. That guy is a mentor, and she'll remember him. I mean, all the kids knew him. My, my older sons at the same school remember Jesse. But within programs, I think we would do so much better. You know that I'm, I'm very interested in closure, so it wouldn't be an interesting thing for me to tell you that I think giving the gift of goodbye is the most important thing a mentor does. But that's because what's part of the giving the gift of goodbye is taking time to say, here's what I found significant about you and important about our relationship. And yes, you were a pain in the butt when you did this and that and the other. But when, 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 when you said this to me and when we did this thing together, I felt special and I thought you're going to have great potential. We don't often do that. Take that time to sort of make sure we say to the kid how we felt honestly and hopefully about them in that relationship. That's what the everyday mentoring movement is about, trying to help teachers. You know, that, that, that teacher you see, you know, you feel like I have a connection with this teacher. But if, and if that teacher would say, you know what, Mike, if you thought we had a strong, positive bond this year that was unique and I thought you were uniquely special, you were right. If teachers could do that, then I, as the kid who felt naturally mentored in that setting, five years later would be less likely to doubt myself and override memories of thinking that was, my, that was a mentor for me. So training everyday people to signify relationships is important. But I think understanding mentoring like we look at relationship quality, uh, we look at activities. I think really we want to know in the end, did that kid feel known? Did they feel valued? Did they feel important? Did this, was this relationship a meaningful one for that adult? And how, what can we do to um, make sure that's what happens? Which often means putting down a curriculum activity or being able to respond you know, caringly at a moment where, where you can provide that. So I think we have long-term effects when those kids feel important and that that relationship is a real one and a valued one. And those kids can internalize that. Well, thanks, Michael. And, and I couldn't agree more with what you said around the need to not only train people that are in contact with young people to be more mentor-like, to kind of show up in these critical moments, but also the the notion that they have to say that to the young person, that there has to be uh, a verbalization almost of that. I, I think back to one of the teachers who was definitely a mentor to me, and it was all unspoken. It was all, I never told her what she meant to me. She never mentioned why. Uh, I was I was perhaps uh, under her wing a little bit more than some of the other kids, and and you know I, I I think I know what the feelings and sentiment were there, but I can only imagine the boost that I would have gotten if she had um, you know had an occasion to just say it and name it and right. And for kids who've been kids who've had those sort of hopes dashed of being affirmed by adults. I think you really got to plant the seed and water it and protect it with some gardening fencing or something. I mean, you can't just count the kids most likely to discount being experiences of being loved and cared for are the kids who most need this. The kids who've been let down are the ones that need us to say, man, there is something special about you. I hear so many times people say, I got into mentoring because there was somebody who really uh, was, was an amazing mentor for me. 
And then, and then you hear say, well, did, did, did they know that? Or was it a formal mentor? And people say, no. I had one, Mr. Griffith from history teacher in high school. I, I, I describe him as a mentor, but I think, I don't know that he would describe me that, that way at all. And my calling him a mentor isn't even consistent with how we define mentoring in many ways. But it comes to mind for me, that experience through those interactions that are hard to name, but that I've carried with me since. I just think we need to be comfortable, just like we need, we need to learn to be comfortable saying goodbye, and it's been great, and I'm gonna miss you. We need to say, I've really enjoyed this relationship, and I have a lot of hope that you're gonna, gonna, gonna rock, and I have reason to, to, have, to have that hope. I'm concerned for you too, because you can screw up left and right, we've seen that, but overall, I think you have a lot of potential, and this has been a great experience for me, and I'm gonna remember you. So I got one last question for you, Mike, and that is the bonus question, which I'm asking all of my podcast guests this year. And that is simply, if you could wave a magic wand and instantly change one thing about mentoring or the mentoring field, what would it be? As a recovering control freak, I would restrict all formal mentoring programs to somewhere between six and 12 months in length. If they're in schools, no more than nine months. I would shorten them because I think we treasure things when time is short. I love, I love programs that have a beginning and an end because if there's an end, then we can celebrate that end. We can give the gift of goodbye. And we can also, like in Cavell's lunch play program, we could have another mentor for the next four months. So I would restrict them. I think we cherish things. You know, you, if I tell you, Geringer, that you, you're terminally ill and you've got three months to live, you're going to get your priorities straight and you're going to attend to those important relationships in your life. Uh, I think the same thing with mentoring. If we were to narrow this and get past this idea that longer is better, I think short, signified, powerful relationships are much better on the whole. And they're much better for a lot of people and especially the people who are typically abandoned and uh, who get lost in programs that have this never-ending date. I think we've misled the field by suggesting longer matches are better. I would take any study that, that looks at that and I can show you how that's not necessarily the case because I believe it's about what happens in that relationship and the different goodies, including the gift of goodbye. And so if we could restrict all matches to have a, a predefined lifespan uh, and be comfortable giving, giving the gift of good, goodbye and monitoring those matches and making sure that we you know, squeeze all the good juices out of that match in those four, six, nine months, I think we would do better on the long run for the for the for the larger majority of kids and for the ones who need it most. Well, I, it's, a, it's an interesting idea. I've heard others express that. Uh, our good friend Sarah Kremer, who used to run Friends for Youth down in California, uh, they actually changed their policy uh, during her time in the program, where they they cut off every match after a year. They closed it down and. And if the, the pair, you know, really liked each other, they could keep hanging out outside of the auspices of the program. But at that point, you know, Sarah considered their work done. We have connected you. If you'd like to keep this going, you're more than welcome. But, you know, with the little resources our program has, we need to provide this now to other children. And so rather than keeping a match, you know, on the books and, and checking in with them every quarter for, you know, years on end, they were like, no, you get a year with our support. If you want to keep that going on your own, uh, you can. If you don't want to, here's a chance to have that closure moment and tell each other how you feel. So, And Sarah knows. She knows what's important to the most at-risk kids and how to, how to, how to protect against risk. I think we, we, we need to wake up and not be so comfortable allowing the slow, silent death of weak matches or matches with difficult kids or hard to reach kids or kids who don't, we just, the slow, the slow silent death haunts. I just know it haunts kids when those matches just evaporate so much better to give those kids who are prone to doubt about whether they're lovable, a match where it's intense focused and it wraps up, they put a bow on it and the kid can move on. Well, thank you, Michael. And I, I agree with you. And speaking of putting a bow on things, uh, it's time, time for us to close out this podcast. Uh, it's been great talking with you as always. I could always pick your brain for hours on end, but 
Uh, we do need to wrap it up. So I'd like to thank our guest, Michael Karcher, for joining us today. And, uh, you know, I also want to remind our audience that uh, if you need help with anything about your program, if you need uh, support developing training, or if you heard an idea in this conversation today that you're intrigued by and you want to perhaps make a change in your program, just a reminder that the NMRC is a source of free technical assistance and training for your youth mentoring program. So if you go to the website at nationalmentoringresourcecenter.org, uh, you'll find a big red Get Technical Assistance button in the upper right-hand corner. Just click on that and we'll hook you up with one of our cadre of experts from around the country and, and really truly get you some expertise and some help in fixing or improving whatever it is you'd like to address with your program. And just remember, uh, you can find other episodes of Reflections on Research also on the NMRC website as well as on SoundCloud, iTunes, and other platforms that uh, carry podcasts of this nature. So uh, thanks again, Michael, for a great conversation today. And remember, everyone, you know, it may seem sometimes like the research is really definitive, but I think we really decide as a field what means what in, in around mentoring research by good conversations like this and by keeping open hearts and minds about the research we encounter. So thanks, Mike, and thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on Reflections on Research. Thanks. Bye.